So this this talk, I called it So This Is Christmas, question mark. It's based on the first two chapters of Luke that describe the births of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus. And I I want to try and put two things across this morning and, and hope that we receive a new sense of wonder as to what happened then. And to do that, particularly by looking at a few aspects that I've actually not heard previously brought out in the Christmas story. So it's a Christmas message with a, with a slight difference, or a slight a, a difference in balance. Secondly, we're going to look at the narrative of Jesus' birth, particularly from a biblical, historical, geographic, geographical perspective, to give some... I'll say different views as to what happened, countering what potentially are some elements of misunderstanding or maybe even myth that have influenced our modern-day view and the sorts of images that we get on our Christmas cards. And because I'm going to do that, because there are some alternative viewpoints that you'll have to weigh up and, and decide what you do with... I do want to start by reinforcing the unchanging foundations of our faith that underpin Christmas. So even if a few things are a different view, there are some things that do not change. Firstly, God exists. If he doesn't, we go for coffee. God is creator of the universe, and he can create at will, anywhere, any time. God revealed himself repeatedly in his creation and then through the people of Israel and through the Lord Jesus and he continues to reveal himself to people today. He so loves the world that he sent his son Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, he is God and he came to save. So in if, if you take nothing away from this morning, remember these five things, ten words. God exists, God creates, God reveals, God loves, God saves. That's, that's our message. My plan had been to read much of the first two chapters of Luke and make comments along the way, but as I was preparing, it's just too much. Too much happens There's not time to look at it in depth. So much in these chapters. You can, if you haven't already read them or go away and read them again, I reckon, depending how you define things, there's somewhere between 11 and 13 direct interventions of God in those chapters. And we're going to pick out a few of them. Interventions, you could call it supernatural or miraculous But we will look at at several extracts, and I'm going to leave you with some thoughts to digest, to ponder, hopefully to benefit from, and some questions that you might need to come back to. First off, Luke wrote this gospel to provide a detailed, ordered, and historical account of Jesus' life for his patron, Theophilus. I haven't yet found who Theophilus was, but wanted to give him confidence in what he'd been taught. And we're going to come back to the importance of this a little bit later. But for now, we're going to jump 
to the foretelling of Jesus' birth. So God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. So the, the first point I want to make, because they appear multiple times through this history, this story, angels are real. We always have the images, but they are real. They are messengers. They are spirits who serve. They're sent out to help those, in one translation, those whom God will deliver, or in the one that I'm familiar with, which is the NIV, those who are the heirs of salvation, which is us. Angels are real. They're here to help us. Now, people's response to the way angels appear, particularly most of the scriptural accounts, not surprisingly, was to be startled, surprised, full of fear, gripped with fear in some some words. Not surprisingly. But then we have the contrast. Sometimes we're told we entertain them unawares, as it says in, in Hebrews. So there's some mystery around angels, but they're still around. And for me, the the timing of this was totally unplanned by me. Last night, I was listening to a seminar on the realm of the angelic. And I think we can and should learn a lot more about how angels are involved with us, even right here, right now, in this place. So the first point, angels are real. They appear through this story a lot. Now, those of you who've heard the other talks wouldn't be surprised. We should have a map. He, the angel Gabriel was sent to the town Nazareth, which is up the top of the map near the Sea of Galilee. Apologies for those who are listening on YouTube. Down in the south is Jerusalem. Who remembers what the distance is? Sort of order, if you, go, if you go the actual route, that sort of order. Yeah, if you're a crow, it's about 90, 90 to 100. And Jerusalem is in Judea, Nazareth is in Galilee, and Samaria is between them. Just a little bit of refreshing of what we've done before. So the angel has appeared to Mary. She was greatly troubled at his words. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The very familiar in our Christmas readings. And this is a remarkable promise given by Gabriel. Just put yourself in Mary's position. Wow, a son who is the son of God. Mary asked the angel, how will this be? 
i.e. how will it how will it happen it's a faith-filled question still a question I, I, my conclusion from that we can ask god good questions in faith we don't understand we can ask it's a very different question to the one we'll hear later which is how can i be sure it will happen she wasn't questioning she was in faith but she was wondering So as I start the next point, I, I will promote, provoke you a little bit, and hopefully the elders won't spit out their coffee, by saying that the birth of the Lord Jesus wasn't miraculous. The birth. But what was it about the coming of Jesus to earth that was miraculous? And it comes in Mary's question. This translation, since I am a virgin, okay, that's actually not the full translation. The New English translation is better. And actually, I think the parents have been saved potential questions by the party. I was wondering how to phrase it. But New English translation states definitively, how will this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man. So then we have the angel's answer. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. No word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. We find many times in the Lord's life that what happened bears a remarkable similarity to events that have been recorded earlier in in the Old Testament. And I think there's a parallel to be drawn here with Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 right at the beginning where we have the phrase the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters and then God said and he created so God exists God creates and the question that that I I came to as I was meditating on all this, particularly those of you who have any sort of scientific interest, but it's a question I think we can all ask and endeavour to answer. What happened in Mary? Was it that a fertilised egg was put in her with the DNA fully provided by God? Or did God create a sperm in the fallopian tube to fertilise an egg? Or was it Holy Spirit hovering over an egg like he hovered over the earth? And then we have to ask another question. When did the pre-existing eternal spirit of the Son of God enter? Now, These are deep philosophical, biological, theological 
questions to which we don't know the full answer. But I believe we can think about and discuss the implications of it and be filled with a sense of wonder. But I think the most important thing, however God did it, the conception of Jesus was miraculous. By the creative power of God, wonderful. And the reason I made my earlier comment is because then there is, there is no other word about pregnancy through to delivery. That was just normal as far as we know. But the conception was the power of God, creative power of God at work in Mary. Now, I've had the chance to think through some of these things and it's still making my head spin a bit. So for now, focus on what was said by Gabriel, who said, no word from God will ever fail. And by Mary, who said, may your word to me be fulfilled. Remarkable faith that she had. And I know the church in its widest sense has had possibly some different views about this, but in my my opinion, this virgin conception is vital to our faith, to Christianity. Jesus is God and man, fully God, fully man. And as Bernard led the songs this morning, the Lord experienced what we experience from being in the womb, through his life, to death, every temptation, pain. But he didn't rebel against God. There was no sin. You could say he was man as man was meant to be, in continuous communion with God the Father, full of Holy Spirit. He was without fault, but our sin was put on him, and his sacrifice was sufficient for our salvation. Thank you, Lord, is what I would say. So, now like some good films or TV shows, we're going to jump back in time and say, this happened earlier. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was Zechariah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Was anybody here for when I talked about Herod the first time? Hmm. So we've talked about his historical context. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is only told in this first chapter of of Luke, but it did strike me this declaration that both of them were righteous And they were observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And I want, for me, to get this the right way round. Why were they righteous? I believe like Abraham, because they believed God. And as a consequence of believing God, they followed his commands and decrees blamelessly. Sometimes we think people were trying to observe all the laws in order to be seen as righteous. I will propose that for these two that wasn't the case. They were like Abraham, believing God, 
undoubtedly there were others who were trying to follow laws to get righteousness. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God and he went in to burn incense. Childlessness as they were in when children are desired was then and remains very difficult. But Zechariah continued to serve God and that I felt that as a, as a lesson for me, for us, when something wanted hasn't happened and also when something unwanted has happened. Let's continue to serve and worship God, offering incense or all aspects of worship and intercession to him. And maybe another time I'll get to talk about the, the burning of the incense. I took that out due to the length of this already. So then an angel comes standing by this altar and Zechariah was startled, gripped with fear. The angel said, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. You will have a son, John. He'll be a joy and a delight. Many will rejoice. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. And this phrase at the end, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Wow. We've already mentioned that angels are real. They bring wonderful promises, speaking with the authority of God. But John the Baptist was the baby John, filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he was born. Yes, he was there to be the forerunner of the Son of God, the one preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. But it it challenged me. Now, my days of immediate children are past, but grandchildren are coming. That's the case perhaps for many of you. And I asked this question, so is that just for John? What are we praying for our babies? Questions for us. And we're going to come back shortly to, to think more about babies in the womb. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Really? I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. (laughs) He's got an angel in front of him, indeed considered an archangel. He's been startled and scared and he still repeats what effectively was the question that Satan asked Eve. Did God really say? And we compare that to, as we said earlier, Mary's response. How will it happen? I know it's going to happen. I just want to know how. But I looked at myself and I said, do you know what? I and possibly some of you can be more like Zechariah than Mary. And, and still doubt after hearing God. So help us, Lord. There's a famous quotation that says, we have to let it all go, fear, doubt, and disbelief, 
and free our minds to believe what the Lord has said. Okay, so then his time of service is complete. He goes home. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Five months, she's in seclusion, but she's grateful. The Lord has done this, taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, in their case, I don't think there's any hint of anything other than a normal conception, but there is the wonder that it was occurring in an older, and depending on your translation, it's either older, old, or very old woman. Don't know how old she was. But God was at work in her. Okay, so at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So one of the bits that I'd redacted before with the blue uh, covering was verse 36. And the angel said to Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her six months. So there was... They were related somehow. And they went, or she went, to the hill country of Judea, which is north of of Jerusalem there. We don't know exactly where they were living, but between a crow and Luca's estimate, it's several days' walk. because, as we talked about in the last talk, they avoided going through Samaria. So when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It was before Pentecost, but Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that set me thinking, and I think she was experiencing living in a day yet to come. And there's quite a few examples of that in the Old Testament where people are doing things that you think, ooh, that's before we might have expected. And my question for us is, can we do likewise? What are the promises that are there for the future, but actually for which we can lay hold of now, living in the day yet to come? And then back to the babies. If the baby in the womb at six months leapt for joy then, this implies to me, personhood, sentience, emotion. And I just meditate. The conception of the Lord was, we will say, miraculous. But actually, every baby is miraculous. We've just grown up to think it's natural, but it's amazing. How precious are babies in the womb? Potentially with... If we try and answer the question, when did the Spirit of the Lord enter, potentially with spirit or personhood from conception? That bit we we don't know for sure. 
but I thought I'd better look up the, the, the sort of common, common psalm where it talks about our beginnings, Psalm 139. And I happen to have my Bible, which is a, a tablet version, open at the complete Jewish Bible. And what I read just made me go, wow. Because it says, instead of my, my eyes saw your unformed body, which is my NIV history, it says, your eyes could see me as an embryo. I thought, wow. You could see me as an embryo between the fifth and the tenth weeks. So it's back to my question of, of clearly babies in the womb are people from very, very early whom we can bless and for whom we can pray. And it's a challenge for those of you who will have babies for those of us who will have grandchildren or folk around us who are having babies let's pray for them mary stayed with elizabeth for about three months then returned home several days walk again now we don't know exactly how the pregnancy timelines overlapped or even if they did at all At the most, she was three months pregnant when she did this walk back. She may not yet have been pregnant, but it's still a long walk. And when John the Baptist was born, I just want to highlight a couple of things in Zechariah's prophetic song after his son was born. He's praising God. He's reflecting on what God has revealed in the word, as he said through his holy prophets, that God has raised up a horn or a strong king of salvation. So again, in the Christmas story, there's God reveals, God saves. And John 3.16 emphasizes the love that God had in sending his son to save the world. Okay, now the final section is just to reflect a little bit on the birth narrative of the Lord. So in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken. Everyone went to their own town to register. Now, remember what I said at the beginning about Luke's intent to give an accurate account. Because there are those who do dispute the veracity of these verses... Herod's kingship timing is really undisputed, but timings recorded by others, particularly by Josephus, are used to dispute this. What I would say is arguments can be made to back up Luke's account. We should be inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt because he went through this methodical, accurate research. Not time to do any of this justice, but just to say sometimes we do have to do some work to understand how the Bible and other records interact. So Joseph went from Nazareth to Galilee with Mary, who was pregnant. The timing and historical context and the way that the birth happened 
in the town of Bethlehem. It's a work of God, ordering history, ordering steps. His timing is perfect. And just to point out, Bethlehem is only a few miles south of Jerusalem. Another multi-day journey, but they probably did this journey multiple times a year anyway to go to festivals in Jerusalem. Now we're on to some of the the questions that I've had and, and alternative answers, if you will. There are indications, because of the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph gave when they dedicated the Lord, it was a poor person's sacrifice, the two doves or two pigeons, rather than a lamb. So there are indications that they were poor, and I've heard one commentator say, so they may well not have had a donkey. But it's also possible they were travelling with others, going to their ancestral town. So they may have been in a caravan and and sharing, but that, that was one point. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So we know Mary was pregnant, it's said at the beginning, but it is extremely unlikely that she was anywhere near nine months pregnant. It's just too dangerous and risky to travel for all those days, whether or not you were on a donkey or walking. And the text simply says, while they were there. And they may have been there for quite a while. And this version, which is the NIV does translate the Greek word kataluma as guest room. It seems to be a misconception that there was no room for them in the inn. I think the issue is there was no inn. And that's because the only other two times this word gets used in the New Testament, kataluma, it's actually in the context of the Lord and the Passover supper in the upper room or the guest room. It's the same word that's, that's here. They would, in all likelihood, have been staying with Joseph's distant family because he'd gone back to his ancestral town. And in the culture of the day, that family would have welcomed them in, even if they had other guests, and even if they were wondering about Mary's pregnancy. The cataluma, or the guest room, would typically have been on on the first floor, hence the upper room designation. And it seems that was already occupied when Joseph and Mary got there. Then, I think it was Angus in his prayer mentioned about the shepherds. Well, in, in the rainy season the animals would probably have been undercover in the ground floor of these typical houses. At night, they would have been undercover. But at the time of Jesus' birth, the sheep were out in the fields. So likely it was the dry season, and we're going to come back to that very shortly. So probably it was on the ground floor that Mary gave birth. 
putting Jesus in the manger, which was probably made of stone. And also I've heard it say it's extremely unlikely that Joseph and Mary would have been on their own. The women of the town would have been with her, regardless of any views on her pregnancy. Giving birth then was much more risky even than now. So possibly no donkey, possibly no last-minute rush to find a place to give birth, no inn, no innkeeper, no scene of just Mary and Joseph and baby in a wooden manger in an outdoor shelter surrounded by animals. I have to say I'm really sorry, uh, but those are the things that we can draw out with Bible and, and a bit of history and geography. And we mentioned this bit before because this gives a clue as to the timing of Jesus' birth within the year. As I already said, it's probably an indication that it was the dry season. So go back to a bit of meteorological data and see that the, the dry season, sort of May to September, and actually that in the, in the wintertime, it's, it does get, in the rainy season, it does get pretty cool. So again, supporting the idea that with the wet and the cool, shepherds may well not have been out in the fields. Which is why you've got to be filled with the sense of wonder at what God did. Well done. So, yes, it's extremely unlikely the shepherds would have been out in their fields with the flocks of the rainy season. The other interesting bit is, for much of the year, the sheep would actually have been grazed in the hill country that we mentioned earlier. They would only have been in the fields after harvest because they would be eating the stalks and leaving their dung that would then be dug into the ground ready for the next crop. So if you, if you follow those assertions, then the most likely time of year for Jesus to have been born is in here, after harvest and before rainy season. But I urge you, do not get sidetracked by this what I'd say is let December the 25th be Jesus' official birthday. I, I learned from this. I, I'd, I'd heard the phrase with our monarch. The official birthday is the second Saturday in June whenever the monarch, whoever's reigning, has their birthday is totally different. So we're still going to celebrate what God has done on December the 25th. Now, for the mathematicians amongst us, you may have already noticed that if he was born in August or September, it's possible he was conceived on December the 25th anyway. So it's a, a neat circle. Two more very brief comments, then I'm done. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. And just to, to make a point that I'm becoming increasingly aware of, the name Jesus is an English take on a Greek rendering of the Lord's original name in Hebrew, which there are some different views, but Yeshua is one of the closest. And you will find 
increasingly worship songs and prayers using the Hebrew forms of the names for God, Yahweh, Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, and of Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh. And somebody asked me about that the other day, implying to me that it was a, it was a fad. I actually think it's more than a, a fad. I think it's really important that this coming together of Jew and Gentile and us understanding our Jewish heritage is really important. So as we celebrate, remember the foundations. God exists. God creates. God reveals. God loves. God saves. Let's major on the creative miracle of the conception of Jesus as God with us. Let's think about how angels were evolved and can be involved with us. And let's pray for any babies in our relationship circles. And let's be aware of how the typical nativity scene or Christmas card may somewhat misrepresent. You can think about that, decide what you want to do with it. But sometimes folk do ask questions and there are some tools that you can use there. So my final words are to use the prayer of Simeon when he met the baby Jesus in the temple. That's Luke 2.30. And he said, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are indeed a light for revelation to us. And we thank you for your salvation. And one or two of the resources that if you want to do any study, you can get back to Thank you very much, Trevor. Thank you. Thank you. Look at that. Five to 12. We're, we're not going to uh, sing another uh, worship song. We, we decided that at the start. So uh, Trevor praying there is, is the mm-hmm. effective end of the service. But um, I wanted to say before uh, we uh, leave today, and please do hang around for teas and coffees if you'd like to. That is a, a time when we're legally allowed to not have the masks on. Um, but uh, I wanted to say next week, sun- Sunday the 19th, 5pm, we have our carol service. Uh, it's going to be uh, unlike any carol service I've ever been to. It's gonna, we, we've called it Cafe Christmas. We're going to have tables and chairs, mince pie, mince, mulled wine and mince pies. Um, and uh, please...